Before I begin, Brother George, I want to let us know um, the Easter tracks are available. They have come in. Easter is coming soon. We are in. I never know if these notes are for me. Hold on. They're not. They're not. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, please. There has been a lot of pages we have missed in the life of David since last week. <laughs> um, just quickly, some of the guys are teasing me. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this series. We pray that you would enjoy it as well. We pray again that you would be reading along. Um, you're not going to exhaust God's Word. You're not going to read it throughout the week and then not learn anything on a Sunday, I promise you. But um, if I can throw this out there so boldly, if we'd love your feedback. If for some reason um, we're going to end this series in June, if by June you say, I would love to do David a little more, tell us. We will pray about it. Maybe we'll do David round two in the fall. Or right now the other guys are looking at me going, no way. So tell us how you feel. Um, but th- this is a, a great passage. Um, I love where we're at. Let's start in um, verse 1 of Second Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. So, so far in our Life of David series, the guy really has not had no rest. He's been attacked. He's been um, had death threats against his life. He has got a bunch of guys together, trained them for war. He's had mighty men. He's been anointed, and yet the crown is not given to him. He's lost his best friends like Jonathan. He has had a stretch of a lifetime here that is anything but relaxing. And now, we're going to fast forward a little bit from last week. By this time in the passage, he is king. Saul has died, and if you read... The Lord has given him rest from all his enemies. It's a good time for David. And so my question right away is, how are we supposed to live this Christian walk when everything actually seems to be going good? There's so many times where, and rightfully so, we go through trials and tribulations. And yet, is there anything biblically, how are we supposed to respond when life's actually good? David is at rest. David's sitting in the palace. He's finally king. And what is his thought process? What would you think about if after so many years of being on the run and so many people wanting to kill you, and you yourself being a man of war, you yourself have killed people. That's where David's at. And finally, God's promise has come to fruition where you are king sitting in a palace, and maybe you can just breathe a little bit. He's at rest. Ain't no enemies coming for a while. What is his attitude? What would your attitude be? In verse 2 it says, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. 
Let's look to the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you so much for being the root and the offspring of David. Thank you that David is a mere type of how glorious you are. Lord, help us to understand every aspect of life. Not only how our faith in you works in times of trouble, but in times of good. Let us learn to be content with a lot and a little. Let us learn how to have much and have little, and yet at the end of the day say, may the name of the Lord be magnified. It really doesn't matter. May we be a people who are fully consumed with who you are and what's going on in heaven and not so much what's going on down here. We pray that you would do a mighty work, that your spirit would control me, that your spirit would control us in the room, that we might learn from the Almighty One. The same one that David called upon lives in us. The one that had power over death lives in us. Help us to understand that. We would humbly bow at your presence this morning. Be glorified and honored above all. In your name, amen. David's first thought is, how can I better the Lord? Life's good for me now. And as I'm sitting here in this palace, what can I do for the Lord? It's one of those things we all have to meditate and contemplate. Are we ever those who just think, instead of by obligation again, what can I do for the Lord? What can I do? We're going to see that actually we're going to really miss a humongous part of this chapter, which is the Davidic covenant. So basically, David says, I want to, buy, I want to build you a house, God. And God says, nope, you're not going to. But in fact, I'm going to build you one. And verses 18 through 29 are going to be David's response to that news. And that's really what we'll be focusing on. But there's so much there in the Davidic covenant as well. We're really not going to um, hit on it too much. But I think it's interesting here where... You'll see in other passages, it actually says David's heart was in the right place. For him to sit there in his palace and say, why do I get to sit in the palace and the ark of God is still in some tents? In fact, if you read the chapters before, this is one of the amazing things that the ark the Philistines took, the very presence of God, and now David has it back. The ark has returned to Israel. This is part of the rest that they're talking about. Enemies are gone. The ark's back. The presence of God is back. It's an amazing time of rejoicing. One of my favorite passages where David wants to bless the people. They're basically having a party. He starts dancing as a common person among the people. And remember that wife of his says, Oh, wow, you look pretty good as a king dancing with those common folk. And David, I love that line, goes, God chose me. <laughs> God chose me. And I'll be even more undignified than this. And then she is uh, barren for the rest of her life. And that whole story of his wife is a great study and what, uh, what her attitude always was. But the reason I say all that is the ark is back. 
And David is thinking, why? Why am I sitting here in the palace and, and, and the ark is in some tents? And God's response is, did I ever ask for a building? In fact, I chose to be tabernacling among you because I chose to go with my people. That's my desire. God never necessarily wanted to be permanent in some ways because he said, I chose to tabernacle with my people. And as the people go, I want to make sure I go with them. That's why I'm in a tent. But again, God's not upset with David's request. In fact, he thinks it's a pretty good request. And I was thinking again of just looking at the Bible in Haggai. I remember it seems quite the opposite. When God says, why do you live in your paneled houses? And my temple's in ruin. Did God change his mind come Haggai? Here he goes, I, I don't want you to build me anything. And in Haggai, he goes, why is my temple in ruin? You guys are in paneled houses. Did God change his mind? I don't think he did. And I think it's just another beautiful picture of what we've learned right from day one of David, that God looks in the heart and not the outward appearance. David's heart's in the right spot. David's sitting there going, why it's not fair that God doesn't get at least what I get. <laughs> it's not even close to being fair. Let me do something for you, God. And remember in Haggai, the people's priorities were, hey, as long as we're taken care of first, God comes second. That's why God had a problem with it. And God here is such an amazing God where he goes, don't build me a house. In fact, I'm going to build you one. Can you imagine that response? David says, oh God, I want to build you a house. And God goes, nope, I'll build you one. Wow. And so the reason I'm contemplating all these things is, first off, does David respond poorly when God says no? Here's a good thing he wants to do for the Lord. He wants to build him a house. God says no. We don't read anywhere in Scripture where David went, come on, let me do it, please. Come on, let me do this for you. You owe this to me, God. I want to build you a temple. He doesn't do that at all. And I wonder if that's a huge lesson that only some of us in the room learn. Here's what I mean by some of us. Some of us pursue the Lord more than others. That's just the truth. And I think it's hard sometimes for people to pursue the Lord and they are in a good spot. They are spiritually healthy. Maybe they're in a good spot, uh, you know, just in everyday life. Money's in the bank. Everything's fine. Not a lot of persecution, not a lot of enemies. And they might have the heart, just like David, to say, God, I want to go do something for you. Are we okay with God saying no? Are we okay with that? In fact, I think it's a huge challenge in, in Christendom today. And one has to search their heart. When we call, think of God calling certain people, I'm not saying he doesn't by any means. I think he does. But it always seems to be interesting to me. God says no a lot sometimes in Scripture. You remember Paul? I have a thorn in my flesh. Can you please take it away? No. No. My grace is sufficient for you. In fact, there's a passage. Let's read 
in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, there was the demon-possessed man that some of you know. This guy, <laughs> he had to be shackled up with chains. He was uh, tortured, tortured by demons. And it says in Mark chapter 5, verse 18, after Jesus has cast him out. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. One of the hardest tests as a believer is understanding God has a plan and you don't get to choose it. I mean, which one of us would not say, Jesus, what... what? This guy wants to be with you. You just healed him from a legion of demons. And all he wants to do is be by your side. And you say no? You say no? That wasn't where Jesus wanted him at that time. It wasn't God's plan. And actually it was a perfect plan, right? Because he does obey and go back and spreads the word in that area. And so for David, I think it's so interesting as we kind of fast forward here. Remember, David never gets to build the temple. His son does. But that doesn't stop him also for preparing. When you read, it says that he absolutely, he prepared more than enough materials for his son to do the job. Because it was still his desire to do it, and yet he was okay with God saying, but you're not the guy for the job. Okay, that's fine. And the reason I think it's so challenging to me personally in my faith is all the stuff that's happened to David previously. Getting anointed and having to wait so long. Getting chased like a dog by Saul. Having to do all these such things. And now he's finally sitting in a position where he's got some authority. He's king. He says build that temple. No one messes with him. There's not one Israelite that says, no, we're not going to do that, David. He has all authority in man's eyes. And it's not his... He goes, okay, God, if you say no, you say no. You say no. Do we have that kind of faith? (laughs) Where we truly say, God, whatever your your desire for me is, I'm going to do. I might want to go (laughs) preach every Sunday. But if instead you want me to do this... Join the Interior Design Committee. And you gotta, you know, you gotta be willing to say, Lord, whatever you want me to do. He has not called me to that. <laughs> God promises him the Davidic covenant. It's a it's an amazing thing. I don't want to brush over, but God says, listen, through you, David, you will have a reigning king forever. Speaking of Jesus Christ himself. That's, that's a pretty high honor. That's, <laughs> you can't get higher than that. 
And so let's go to the end of the chapter because we're going to start talking about David's response to this news. And at the very end, it will kind of tell you why he's about to pray. So in verse uh, 27, For you, Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. Therefore, he has found in his heart the desire to pray because God's response is, I will build you a heart. I like, I think it was Spurgeon who said this. I'm just going to read his commentary. The prayer that came from the heart. But David, when he wanted to pray, went and looked in his heart to see what he could find there. And he found in his heart to pray this prayer to God. This leads me to say, dear friends, that the best place to wit in which to find a prayer is to find it in your heart. Some would have fetched down a book and they would have said, let us see what is the day of the month. How many Sundays after Advent? This is the proper prayer for today. David did not go to a book for his prayer. He turned his heart to see what he could find there that he might pray unto God. Other of us perhaps would have been content to find a prayer in our heads. We have been accustomed to exemptorize in prayer and so perhaps bowing the knee we would have felt that the stream of supplication would flow because we are so habituated to speaking with God in prayer. Ah, dear friend, it's no worse to find a prayer in a book than to find one in your head. It's very much the same thing, whether the prayer is printed or is extemporized, unless it comes from the heart, it is equally dead in either case. We talk about a man after God's own heart. David did not intellectually respond to God. In verse 18 of this chapter, it says, Then David went in and sat before the Lord. So here's the scene. David gets this news from Nathan that God has said, No, but I will build you a house. And he leaves his palace and goes into the tent, the tabernacle, and he sits before the Lord. He has a desire to pray. And he's praying this from his heart. Not from one who goes, okay, now I'm king. What's the right prayer to do? Not the one who's calling on a Levite saying, Has we got any written prayers down that I can kind of quote? I just got some good news from God. Something. It's something that is meaningful to him. He gets to search his heart and find out that in his heart, he actually loves the Lord. He actually desires, and we can think about all the Psalms written where he absolutely loves to be in the presence of God. And out of this love and out of his heart, he wants to respond to his God's response to him. I just want to encourage us again. I hope our prayer life is not intellectual based. I hope, first of all, we're praying. We've been trying to say it over and over. And 
I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to myself. Sometimes it's as weird as the speaker's like, man, we said that so many times, and yet I know my own self. I need to hear every single week, you got to keep praying. you got to keep praying. And getting news like this, you know, he doesn't even, it, it would appear he doesn't even go see family, he doesn't go see friends, he just wants to go run away and be with God. And from his heart, we're about to check out this prayer that he gives to God. I just, I just want to encourage us, there's nothing better than that kind of communion with God. You, you have got to pray like that. You have got to be a person that goes and has times where you sit before God and you just talk to Him. And you tell Him how much you love Him. And you tell Him how great He is. And then you might bring up some of the things that are going on in your life and say, God, I don't understand these things. I have, ne- I have never, I've never liked the whole recited prayer, all, all those kind of stuff, because to me it's not personal. I, I'm not saying it, it can't be. I'm just saying for me personally, I've never liked it because he died on the cross so that you could intimately talk to him. This is a great piece of David's character, what we're about to see in his prayer to God. And it's coming from his heart. It's coming from his heart. I would like to say, the interesting thing is that his heart is in the right spot. His heart's in the right spot. And so, um, he's a great example. I would also like to say, while we look at this prayer kind of the opposite attitude. So here's what I mean. David is not like this, but human nature would lend to, would there ever be a time where when David is sitting at this position, he feels like, you know what? I I earned this. I finally deserve it. You know, all my years of suffering when I was anointed king and I had to run away from Saul... All the years of me just being a faithful shepherd, being in the court, having spears thrown at me, and I still came and did my job. All those times my brothers tried to attack me for no reason. I'm finally king. All those times where everyone rejected me. I'm finally king. And you know what? I deserve to be here. Because I've been faithful. That's not who he is. But I think it's a good lesson for us to see how he's not like that. Because I think one of the hardest things in life, if we're honest, is to not have that creep up into our faith. I deserve to be here. I've obeyed. I've been faithful. I deserve to have this lifestyle now. You know, some people never get it. Do we get that? Some people are faithful to the Lord and through man's eyes never have a good life. And and that's between them and God. There is (laughs) such a, a, um, just a spirit of entitlement. And we know this, right? Especially here in America. Hey, that that you, you deserve what you, what you get. The house the money. Christians have some of that. 
if I follow the Lord, he better give me a spouse. Because I get that, right? But, I, you know, I, I get that. I didn't go into the world, so I at least get a good marriage. I get that. That's all an entitlement thinking. God didn't promise that to anyone. And David is the opposite. So, how do you protect yourself when you think you deserve it? Let's look at how David sees himself as a person. And again, remembering what's in this guy's resume. (laughs) Mighty warrior. People feared this guy. Able to have political power. Political power has now been set up as king. Has brought the ark of God back into Israel. Thousands of people chanting his name. Thousands. (laughs) The guy has what we would call a great lifestyle at this point. Let's look. What he says in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? I want to read the same story in First Chronicles chapter 17. First Chronicles 17, 17. We'll start in verse 16. First Chronicles 17, 16. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. And have regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree. O Lord God, what more can David say to you for the honor of your servant? For you know your servant. David knows there's nothing good in him. David is not worried about where God has placed him. He has always kept his shepherd's perspective. He has never sat there and thought, about time I got here. He is sitting there, wanting to do something good for the Lord. The Lord says, no, but I'm going to build you a house. And instead of David going, nice, I deserve that. He goes, who, who, why Why are you thinking I'm a man of high degree? Why are you doing that? With all of that resume attached. His his attitude is, 
what? Why? I'm, I'm just a man. I'm just a man. I like the fact that he doesn't trust in his own righteousness. Second Samuel, back there it says uh, in verse 20, Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. In fact, some would say, it's more like David saying this. Listen, I, I'm sitting here before you, and, and words can't even express how much you mean to me. So you know your servant. I, I can't even talk about it. You, you just search me, God, and, 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 and figure out what I'm trying to say, how, much, how awesome you are to me. But I think there's also another piece here where it says, For you, Lord God, know your servant. You, you know my mess-ups, too. You know when I've failed. You knew my heart when no one else did. Don't, you know, Lord, I'm just a man. I'm just a man. Wouldn't it be great if all of us kept that attitude all the time? (laughs) You know, one of the marks of Christendom that people really don't like is when it seems like they have big ministries or big flocks or... uh, Whatever you want to call it. And, and some, sometimes the language is, well, God's given me this. Again, I, I don't know their hearts. I'm just saying, I like this. <laughs> and David goes, listen, I'm just a man. Why are you doing this? That should be our desire, no matter what God gives us. I, I'm just a man. I'm just a man. Another way... To protect yourself when you think you deserve it, besides recognizing that you are nothing, (laughs) is to realize your actions don't mean nothing either. Which, by the way, this whole idea of him saying nothing, in this prayer, God, um, David calls himself God's servant ten times. God's servant. And again, if you're the king, that's pretty amazing. For him to say, I'm, I'm your servant. David has ultimate say what right now what happens. And it's just a great storyline. Even the people love him because they know he waited. They know he didn't go try to steal the kingdom from Saul. He's actually still sticking up for Saul in some ways in his family. He, they know that. And it makes people love him even more. He's calling himself a servant. What about his actions? He's sitting there in verse 21, and David gives credit where credit's due. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you've done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Instead of David saying, look, I know why you're doing this for me. Because I did this, this, and this in the past. He instead turns and says, God, the reason you're doing this is because you made a promise. And your word is what we go by. You made a promise to Abraham. You made a promise way back in Genesis to save us. And now you're telling me the Messiah, a reigning king, is going to come through this family line. It's because you said so. Not because of what we did. Not because of what we did. 
Wouldn't it be absolutely insane of anyone to stand before God one day in heaven and have anything but, it's because your word that I'm here. If anyone would even dare think, I'm here because of anything else besides your word has declared that if I believe in you, I'm here. That's why I'm here. It's your word. And these are the great promises that God is not a man that he should lie. These are great promises that God doesn't break his promises. And David knows that. It's by his word. They mean something to David. It's also for his pleasure. Do we get God showing us his heart through this? And according to your own heart, you've done all these great things. David understands. I'm sitting here trying to build you a temple. You're going to come around and say, no, I'm going to, build, I'm going to give you an everlasting kingdom. David is, is blown out of his mind going, what? that's impossible unless you want to. That's the only thing he can come up with. God, you want to do it. You actually want to do this. And so by that, let's do it. <laughs> because that's what's in your heart, God. It actually brings you pleasure to do this. Remember Ephesians chapter 1? says he predestined us by his own good pleasure. Listen, it makes him happy to save us. And I don't get it, but I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy that fact. It's his good pleasure to save us. He likes to save people. He likes that we're going to go with him in heaven. He loves when I talk to him. I don't get it, but I like it. I like that about my God. And by the way, we know. This is where he says, Therefore, you are great, O God. There is None like you. No other gods are even close to this. Because even this happened back then, it happens now. You understand our faith, right? These, these words that we've said over and over and over. There are so many faiths that make you do something to earn your respect with God. Make you do something to get God to love you. you got to come back as a butterfly and a grasshopper, and hopefully you come back as a dog one day, and it keeps going on and on until you earn your keep, until you earn your way. And if you can sit there and, and meditate and think inside deep enough, you can somehow get nirvana. You can do all those things. Or somehow you can appease God by doing X, Y, Z, and then He's happy with you. Right from Old Testament, right from it's always been, God, I can't do anything. But it makes you happy to save me. It makes you happy. That's why we love our God. That's why we say there's no other God like you. Because one of my favorite verses is that he remains faithful even when we don't believe him. Because he cannot deny himself. It is in his character to be committed to us. It's in God's You don't have a say in his commitment to you. You don't have a say. You serve a God that will forever, forever be committed to you. Forever. There's no other God like him. There's no one else like him. No matter what, he is forever committed to you because it brings him pleasure to do so. David got that. And that should wipe out every single 
piece of entitlement we think we have. Every single little piece of entitlement, gone. Because it's for his pleasure that he's committed to us. We really should be getting to the point where we say, I can serve no other. I can serve no other. It's not about David's connections either. David could be sitting there thinking, you know, I took 400 little ragamuffins and I made them mighty men. I actually was a man on the run who had the influence to get 400 plus men and their families to give their lives for me, to fight for me when I didn't have a kingdom. He has amazing ways with people. People follow this guy. And he can sit there and say, God, it should come through me because I know how to deal with people. That's not how he is. Look what he says in verse 24. I'm sorry, verse 23. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for himself a name and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you made your people Israel, your very own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. It's interesting to me that a king would say, these are your people, not mine. David has finally been elevated to the point where everyone can bow the knee at him. He walks into a room, people bow. And he will not sit there and say, these are my people. He will say, they are your people. They are your people. And yet... He will live his life like they're his people too, with great concern. This is the beautiful thing about stewardship that we've always tried to say. Is that as God gives, we treat whatever God gives us like our very own. That if God has entrusted you with certain things, you treat it like it's your very own. You try your best to make sure it flourishes whatever God has given you, your kids, your ministry, and yet always in the back of the mind, you're going, but it's not mine. (laughs) It's not mine. This is the hard thing about pairing that we've talked about. Your kids are not yours. And yet I don't sit there and go, oh, well, you're God's. (laughs) I don't really have to deal with you. (laughs) I don't do that either because that would be foolish. I I go to work for my kids. If I didn't have to feed them, I don't know how much I'd work. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'd probably feed, work for my own feeding. <laughs> but we, we do those things. And yet, at the end of the day, we say, they're not mine. They're God's. It's stewardship. It's the idea of knowing I don't own anything. This, again, is what I'm talking about with entitlement. You're not entitled to anything because you don't own anything. We don't own anything. God has given us stuff on layaway. That's it. And yet, there's a responsibility with that. 
There's a responsibility with that. We have seen over and over David saying, remember, we just did two weeks ago. Should I go fight? It's the king's job to fight. And David's saying, but these are God's people. i got to fight. i got to fight and defend. He's not in a position to do that. It's going to cost him his life, he thinks. And yet that stewardship, but this is what God has given me. I'm going to fight. But I love the fact that he says, your people, your people. This is the king of Israel. Your people, not mine. Not mine. Finally, look what he says. In verse 25, Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. You know what I do love? I love the way he ends it. Okay, God, if you're going to make all this great claim on my house, and he gives all the credit back to God, right? But at the end, he goes, if you want it done, then do it. Establish this house. Make this house of David all that it can be. He says, so many Christians that don't want to go to that part either. Bless me, God. Well, kind of, if you want to. I, I don't get that stuff. David, in the very, and I'm not saying I can be like that by any means. I have so much to grow, but he's in a beautiful spot of complete humility. And in that humility, he's saying, you need to do what you said. Establish this. I'm not going against this, God. If you want to make my house the house that the Messiah comes through, I am on board. Establish it that your name might be magnified. That your name might be magnified. And I'm telling you, guys, do you think that God has changed? That He doesn't want to use us in mighty and powerful ways that we can say, let your name be magnified. Establish it. Do what you have to do, God. Do what you have to do. I do not like false humility. Where God gives you something, you go, I don't know. I can't. I, I don't. I don't know. I, that that's not right. That's not right. He says, establish it. And whatever God has given us, we should be praying. The Lord bless it and establish it, so that His name be magnified. That's where our hearts should be. So, I pray, maybe this prayer of David in the middle of this context, would help us to never think we deserve stuff. Never think too highly of ourselves, our actions, or our connections. But to really, truly give it all back to the Lord and say, you're the one. You're the one that's put me here. And live in that. Live in that. 
I'm going to give thanks for the meal downstairs as well. Do we know if uh, we have to wait at all? Anyone? No? I believe, uh, as in times past, let us make sure some of the olders go before the youngers so that there's food. And yet, may I say with all humility, olders, get yourselves down there because there's people who are hungry. <laughs> so if you're up here for five, ten minutes, don't complain. All right. We look forward to a good time. Again, if you didn't bring food, don't worry about it. Please come have lunch with us. Today is our annual report. Stay here about what the Lord's doing at the assembly. Please stay. Let's look to the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, again, we are amazed at the way you work. Thank you so much um, for doing things through any of us. You have truly been glorified with the fact that angels can look down here at Brantford Bible Chapel right now and say, oh my goodness, look how you've changed their lives. That we would be here talking about you and loving you. And they have said, wow, what, what an amazing God you are. That we would change for you. Thank you so much, Lord, for doing such a tremendous work. You truly deserve all glory. That you can take a people like us and do works through us. We want to give you all the credit. We want to give you all the praise. Lord, we again would pray that you would bless this assembly. That you would establish it. That we would grow in the grace and knowledge of yourself. That we would people be a people that do tremendous and mighty things for you. We would not be um, a people that just kind of live our lives and half-heartedly commit to you. But we would magnify your name. Would you see fit to use us? Oh Lord, let us be content with whatever you've given us to do. Thank you so much for who you are. And again, Lord, thank you that uh, we have food downstairs. May you bless our conversation. May it be about you. Let us have a good time of fellowship and eating. Help us, Lord, during our times where it is good that we might think about you. In your name, amen.